Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. It's the Last Stand Podcast. And here's your host, Brian Custer. That's right. Last Stand Podcast, the LSP, another quarantine edition of the Last Stand Podcast. I am Brian Custer. And today's episode, we've got the lovely and the talented. She's an Academy Award nominated actress, uh, former TV host, dancer, choreographer, best selling author, uh, social activist. Uh, and by the way, you can also add the First Lady of Boxing, all of those to her resume. She's the one and only Rosie Perez. Rosie, welcome to the Last Stand podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. So it's great to have you on. Um, Listen, first of all, let let me just ask how you're doing, how how is your family doing, especially in light of everything going on with the pandemic? Well, my family is okay. God bless. Had a few friends and distant friends pass from uh, COVID-19, you know, but everything is okay, you know, and keeping my mental health in check. Um, I would say that, you know, it's, it's been tough, you know, I was isolated by myself for eight weeks because my husband was doing an artist residency at the Elaine de Kooning Institute and um, he wanted to come home and I said, no, you can't miss this opportunity. I'll be okay. You know, so my family was really there for me and that was fantastic. Um, I would say that, you know, besides that, the only bad thing is that I'm, I'm fat. <laughs> I, I think I'm so much weight. <laughs> it's, like, it's horrible. Yeah, I think a lot of us have to put on some quarantine pounds. Uh, you're right about that. I, I'm curious. Let's get deep because a star of your magnitude, um, just your thoughts on the state of our country right now uh, and everything that has been going on from the protests. Well, I think what had happened was is that, you know, this time the Band-Aid has stayed off. You know, we've had other instances. This is not, you know, God rest his soul, George Floyd is not the first man of color to be killed by police, um, senselessly killed by a police officer. Um, But this time, nobody's trying to put the Band-Aid back on. And it's hurtful and it's ugly and we're watching all the uh, negative stuff kind of ooze out, but it's good because sometimes you need that for healing. 
you know, we, we need the wound to be exposed to get some air in it and some new life. And that's been evident with all the young people taking to the streets and protesting and demanding change. And they, they haven't stopped. And, you know, I've been an AIDS activist for over 30 years. We haven't stopped fighting, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a, terrible time, it's a sad time, but it's also a very, very hopeful time. You know, and I just hope that young people understand that the fight doesn't stop when the marching stops. You know, that's one thing that I learned from the AIDS movement. You know, we're still fighting for a cure, but look at all the things that we gained throughout the years. You know, even if you think about the new law that has been passed protecting gay rights and LGBTQ rights in regards to hiring and firing, that took years, years. And hopefully it won't take that long for change, but I think that everyone should just gear up and get ready for what's to come, because this is just the beginning. You know, that we have the foot soldiers out on the pavement. Now we need our generals and lieutenants inside, inside making real change happen. You know, we've had the, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of black athletes uh, about this subject, but it, it's good to have you. And uh, as a woman of color, um, what did you think when you saw uh, the story of Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, um, Rashad Brooks, but, but mainly George Floyd, when you saw the video and saw that those people and that man die, what did you think as, as, as a woman of color? It shook me to my core, each of those, um, each person's senseless uh, death, murders. Um, shook me to the core, but seeing that video, I couldn't finish it. Um, and I sobbed for days. And, you know, and, and I was telling my husband, I said, when is enough going to be enough? You know, we watched a man slowly die on, on video with arrogance and hate. That's what killed him. And, and I just, I just said, when is enough going to be enough? And I remember telling him, anarchy is going to start because this is, this is ridiculous. And sure enough, you know, but I'm glad it didn't get to that point. You know, I'm glad that young people and just people all around the world are, are, are doing this for the most part peacefully. And, and, and it's hitting, it's hitting um, the powers that be. They're, they're, they're paying attention, you know, but initially it was just pure hurt, sadness, and anger. It was just mm. hard. You know, I've had a number of uncomfortable conversations and you hear people say, the good thing is that we are starting to have conversations. I'd like to hear your perspective because your husband's white. Have you had to have uncomfortable conversations with one another? All the time. Um, one time we got pulled over and he thought he could talk his way out of it. I was the one that was driving and I told him, shut up. And he said, what? No, let me handle this. I said, no, no, no. I said, you know, I don't have the hair and makeup going on. I'm in a baseball cap, no makeup and sweatpants. And I said, just be quiet. And I got all my stuff and I put my hands like this. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm putting my hands up. 
And he turned and he looked at me and he said that his heart broke. Wow. You know, and, you know, and they made us get out of the car because I allegedly made an illegal left turn. There was no illegal left turn, you know, um, and, and he couldn't believe it. And on the way, on the way home, you know, they let us go, you know, um, because I started shooting off officers' names that I knew. <laughs> when, hold up, hold up. I know so-and-so at the so-and-so precinct, you know, and, and, um, and he said, I never saw that side of you. I said, that's called survival mode. That's what that's called. Because hmm. you never know. It doesn't hmm. matter. Your celebrity does not matter when you are of color. It doesn't matter. You know, there's one thing that I saw on the ESPN channel when um, they were asking uh, Andre Ward and Timothy Bradley about what's going on right now. Timothy Bradley brought me to tears because he has both perspectives. He was talking about his wife is Latina and what she has to go through. You know, we think that sometimes we're, you know, our own nationality, our own race has its own problems. No, it cuts across the board, you know? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that now they're starting to say, not just black people, but they're starting to say black and brown people, because yeah, it's been happening to us as well. They put our children in cages. That wasn't enough. You know, they were sexually assaulting violently our women in U.S. detention centers. That wasn't enough. They were sending back women who came to this country for asylum because their husbands beat the crap out of them and sold them into slavery. And that wasn't enough. You know, so we have our own issues here too. You know, and, and so I'm glad that the divide is lessening you know, and that we're all coming together, you know, but I, I wasn't hopeful that the discussion started. That's not what I'm hopeful about. What I'm hopeful about is the change in policy because it means nothing. Talk means nothing. Action means everything. Wow, that's strong. Um, you, you see so many of these networks, uh, these companies have put out these statements uh, that we care about Black Lives Matter, we care about uh, stories of people of color. What kind of changes um, and action do we need to see out of Hollywood? Oh, out of Hollywood, it's... <sighs> I think that it's on white people to make the change because they have always put it upon us to make the change. You know, why don't you guys do your own movies? Why don't you guys market your own product? Well, you know what? That's really difficult if you're in power and we're not. You know, if you look at somebody like The Rock and 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 um, I forgot the uh, comedian's name. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. I mean, their movies make so much money. How did they do it? They didn't change their marketing plan. See, what Hoppy sees is that they think if it's, there's a Latino movie or an African-American movie, they have to change the way they market the movie. No, you just have to add on to your regular marketing plan. And that's what they did with those type of movies. And it worked. And they were like, oh my goodness. You know what I'm saying? But that's because The Rock and Kevin Hart used their power. You know what I mean? And said, listen, we make money. 
So we need your money and your power behind us. And also I think that white people need to put people of color in power positions. You know, so I think that, that that's, that's a lot of the change. And I think also, <coughs> excuse me, Brian, the perspective of the movies need to change. You know what I'm saying? Like if you see, you would see a lot of movies about slavery and it would be from, the protagonist would be a white person. Yes. You're like, what? Yeah. No, it didn't happen to you. You did it to us. Why, why do you keep saying it? And then uh, 12 Years a Slave comes around and it's written by a black man and it's directed by a black man and it stars a black man. And it was a worldwide success. So the old argument that people of color don't go see their own movies is BS. People of color don't go see their own movie because you didn't market it well. You didn't write it well. You know what I mean? You had a perspective that we don't want to see anymore. So that has to change as well. Um, talk to me about what is it like, especially for someone like you and at the level that you're at where, you know, look, you have been at the top, whether it's television and whether it's <laughs> Hollywood. What is it like as an actor trying to work in a pandemic? I mean, are you just at home? What, what is that like? Well, initially I was just at home and I was going crazy, you know, cause you know, I, 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 I been working a lot and I was in the middle of um, doing a new show for HBO Max, nice little plug there, um, called The Flight Attendant. And they, you know, they shut us down and we all knew that. And then Trinity Boxing shut down and I'm like, oh great, like, what am I gonna do, you know? And, um, and then Sting, the musician and his wife, Trudy Styler, gave a call and said, we're doing this independent movie project where we're gonna ask 10 people to write uh, 10 separate uh, 10 minute short films and we want you to do it. And I said, oh great, what's the script? They go, no, we want you to do it. You have to write the script you have to direct the script and you have to shoot the script. And I did that and it was so hard. It was so hard. You know, I was like, roll camera. Oh, I'm rolling the camera. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, it was, it was crazy, but it was exhilarating and I learned so much and it was such a blessing because it just, it started my juices flowing all over again and my creative juices. And then it's like, I looked on the camera, I go, oh my God, I look like a fat pig. Okay, let's readjust the camera over here. You know, and so it's like, then I started working out and all this stuff. And so it was great. It was great for me. And right now we're in the editing phase. So fingers crossed, I think it's going to come out really well. Oh, that's fantastic. We certainly, I'll be looking out for that. Um, so you, you mentioned it early and you have, have, have talked about it. You're a big proponent of it. How important is mental health in not only a pandemic, but then when you see all of these images that we are seeing uh, and you're a person of color, it's got to affect you. How is mental health during times like this? It's very, very difficult. And I'm so glad you asked me that question because most people think, oh, you know, that I have money and I'm fine. Money isn't a cure for mental illness. And money isn't a cure for happiness. You know, money isn't even a cure for contentment. You know what I mean? Like those things happen within. And when you um, don't have all the equipment to stay at a certain level um, of, of, of good quality emotional health, health, you need help. 
And so I have my psychiatrist on speed dial, you know, because just being away from my husband that long in my family, it was very difficult. You know, being in a huge house all by myself, people go, oh, poor you. Yeah, you know what? It was hard. It was hard because I have abandonment issues because of my abject poverty childhood that was filled with abject poverty and, and, and abandonment and all this stuff. And all those things can creep in no matter how much hard work you've done throughout the years and what I've done throughout the years, it still kind of creeps in because, you know, my psychiatrist told me once when I met you, you were, you were just treading water in the Atlantic ocean. We're going to try to move that to a lake, then slowly to a pond. And then eventually it's going to be just a puddle. And then that's the hard work. You're going to, we're going to help you build a bit bridge over that, that puddle. And that's what I've been doing, but the puddle is still there. It never goes away. Wow. And you have, to, you have to accept that fact and you have to learn how to work with it and modify your behavior, you know, so it was hard. And then added that to seeing, you know, another uh, black man getting killed by police senselessly on TV. It's just, my mind just was exploding. And you have to keep that in check because it can go out of hand and you can go down that dark rabbit hole very, very quickly. So I hope anybody watching this who has any type of mental health issues, please get help. And you can get help for free with your, with your, through city hall or through your state government. There are people that are available, but it is difficult. And what, you know what, and I'm, I'm happy you brought that up because that was going to be my follow-up because we always hope that when people watch, they listen to this podcast, they get something, not only from the stories of the people that we've interviewed, but they get something uh, substantive from there. And so if I want some help to go get mental help, and maybe I don't have the money, you know, how can I, how can I get help? You can go on to whatever city that you're from, .gov, nyc.gov, um, or newyorkstate.gov, and they have programs. Um, if you don't have a computer, you can make a phone call to 311, and you can ask, where can I get help for free? And, and they have facilities. And you can also go and check out if you do have a computer or, or a smartphone and, and look up non-for-profit organizations because they have those as well. And they have a lot of 1-800 hotlines as well too. You know, you know it's funny, Brian, that, that, that sports people, they were kind of ahead of the game, right? Sports athletes, top athletes started going to sports psychologists to help them through. You know what I mean? Get through um, because it, it, it's, it's a, such a tough life you know, and all your personal issues come into play. That's why I love boxing. When I, I'm mesmerized when you have a boxer and a really good bro broadcasting channel gives the backstory because that's part of the excitement when you get to know the fighter, right? And they give the backstory and you say, oh my God, their life was crap. And now they're going for a 12 round championship. How did they get there? How did they get there? And then what I'm thinking is, how do they stay there? Mm. Once they step in the ring, they're really, one of their opponents is their selves. You know what I mean? Cause like a trigger for me, if you push me, I want to punch you back. You know, how do you, and that's what people don't understand. Like I had a, uh, one of my relatives goes, what does they mean when they keep saying, oh, he maintains his composure. And I said, cause he's getting punched in the face like 10 times straight. 
and he's not he's he's not he's not seeing letting you see him sweat yeah and he's staying in the game he's staying in the fight and that's what we need to do in life you know what i mean and so so you know even when you saw tyson fury get knocked down and he rose like lazarus from the dead <laughs> he really rose like lazarus from the dead in that first fight <laughs> i was like oh my god you know and, and you know and that man suffers from mental illness. The fortitude, the mental fortitude it took that man to get back up and say, no, I'm not going to quit is amazing, is amazing. And I truly feel that Tyson Fury could have never gotten to that point if he didn't address his mental illness. It's such, man, you just dropped a few gems there because you always hear whether it's a boxer or professional athlete say the game is 90% mental and 10% physical. And then to take your analogy a step further, when you talk with Tyson Fury, he always said that when I got up and I realized I took this man's biggest shot and I'm still here. Oh, I knew I was going to win. And thus the reason why he won the rematch, because he said he had taken Wilder's back biggest shot and so in the second time they fought he knew there wasn't anything that Deontay could throw at him that he couldn't handle and we saw what happened the second time they fought um you know I saw you and Chris Rock you attended uh Governor Cuomo there of New York his press conference uh during the height of that pandemic uh, talk to me about why you know tell me why'd you feel the need to to be there and to talk about all that you you talked about that day well, first of all, because he asked. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yes, the governor, yes, sir. Um, his senior advisor gave me a call and said, we need you. And I said, when? Tomorrow morning. What? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay, okay. And, um, you know, and they said, increase. Uh, your friend, Chris Rock, is going to uh, participate too. And I was, you know, I was blown away. And, and we had to go in a separate room. We couldn't be near the governor. I hope I'm not giving the inside secrets, but we, could, we couldn't, oh, whatever. Um, we, couldn't, we couldn't be near the governor. So we had to be um, allocated to a separate room. And there, were, there was a medical professional there and they tested us and we got our test results in five minutes. Wow. And Creasy and I had to be separated as well. And we both tested negative. Um, we still had to sanitize our hands and keep our mask on. And while we're going behind the curtain, while he, uh, Governor Cuomo began the press conference, Chris looked at me, he says, you know what, I've known you forever. I said, since the late 80s. He goes, and we've done so many things together. I go, yes, we have. And he goes, this one, it's the heart. This one is special. Wow. This one is big, you know? And I said, yeah, he goes, we're doing our civic duty. I said, yes, we are, Chris. You know, and then we elbowed each other, you know, how they do now. And, um, and I was like, oh my God, Chris, don't get emotional. We got to get out there, you know. <laughs> you know, and, um, and it, was, it was an honor. It was a real, real honor. And they gave us a few talking points. And Chris said, should we read off the talking points? They go, if you want. But we'd rather have you speak from the heart. And, but, you know, just don't go crazy and say, you know, something that's, you know irresponsible and we go got it you know so yeah that was good stuff that was good stuff yeah I sat there and I watched the the whole time uh you doing your civic duty you know uh, I read your book uh, 
which is Handbook for an Unpredictable Life. And I'd recommend anybody, uh, if you want to know anything about Rosie and just everything from mental illness to just someone who made herself into a big time star, a great read. Um, but your life's fascinating. So born in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. uh, parents were married to other people uh, when you were conceived. And you talked about how you spent a large part of your childhood in group homes. Yeah. For those who are watching, those who are listening to this podcast, who know you but know you as the star Rosie, talk to me about how young Rosie grew up. Because to me, I, I, I was in tears reading about your childhood. Well, like you said, I was born and raised in, in Brooklyn, New York, but I was ripped from my aunt's arms. I was a love child, as you stated. And so I thought my father's sister, um, God rest her soul, was my mother. And out of the blue, when I was four years old, my real mother came and ripped, literally ripped me from her arms and put me in a Catholic home for displaced, unwanted, and orphan children. And... From day one, I kept saying, why am I here? I don't belong here. And I never gave that up. Where I saw a lot of children give in, you know, to the circumstance, and I refused. And I know that is because I knew love. Someone loved me. My aunt loved me. My father loved me. She told me I was special every day. Um, so... It was terrible. It was, it was a terrible experience. And shuttling back and forth from upstate New York to Brooklyn, I had you know, a foot in one world and a foot in another world. That was very difficult too. Um, and my mother never, ever, ever would release custody to my father or my aunt. And it made no sense. Why? Because she was a paranoid schizophrenic. You know, so it was an irrational decision on her part. I don't know if it was guilt or she didn't want anybody else to raise me. I don't, I don't understand. I still don't understand to this day. And, and then when I was about to get out, um, she said no again. And so I had to be transferred to a group home and they started a group home for kids that they thought could make it in the real world. So you had to be academically or socially advanced. And I checked both boxes, so I got to be in a group home, and that was actually a step up from the home. The home was hell. Mm -hmm. It was hell. It was, a, it was a lot of physical, mental abuse that I endured by the nuns there. Um, and when I got to the group home, the physical abuse stopped, but the mental and emotional abuse did not. And so I stayed there Monday through Fridays, and then on Friday, I got on the, the Metro North and went home. And then I would have to go back. And... And it really, really did a number on me. Um, and then, it, then finally, when I, I forgot how old I was, like 12 or 13, I think it was 12, I, I, I finally got to go home for good with my aunt. Mm -hmm. And if, my, if, if, if it was agreed that my aunt gave my mother the welfare check for me. Wow. And so, and then that's how I got to go home. You know, Brian, that's why I understand the fight game so much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because if you look, there's a lot of, there's, there's a few fighters out there that didn't come from abject poverty, that didn't come from tough beginnings, you know, didn't come from abuse or whatever. And they make it, but they don't stay there. 
They don't stay there because they don't have that will. They don't have that determination that someone who grew up with lesser means has. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's like, I mean, if you think, if, you know, if you think of any of your favorite, even if you think of Mike Tyson, look at all that he went through. You're right. And he was determined. And you think about Tyson Fury, and he, he just determined, like, life has knocked us down so many times. But we know how to get back up. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the difference. And I wish people would give pe people of lesser means, that grew up with lesser means, that credit. You know what I mean? We're not tough in the sense that what you think, how we're tough, that we can beat you up. We're tough because we can stay in the fight. Man, you, you're so right about that. And, and, and so I'm, I'm reading uh, about your story and you, you talk about how your mother, um, even when you would go home on the weekends and things like that, but she, you talked about mentally, the physical abuse well into your, your, your teenage years. And even when you did how, if I'm not mistaken, if I interpreted it right, you had like a half brother there uh, at your mother's house who even uh, there was sexual abuse. How did you survive all of that? Um, by running always back to my aunt or to my father, hmm. or maybe my aunt. You know, when those things happened and I would come home, let's say, with a bloody nose, you know, my aunt would go, what happened? And I would lie. I would mm. say, oh, I, I fell. Or I, oh, and I'll make up a funny story. Oh, I was running and I, and I hit a wall. I didn't know it was there. You know, and um, out of protecting her. Because mm. she was so kind and gentle. I knew she couldn't take it. You know, and, and in a weird way, I was protecting my mother, you know, uh, you know, and, and because I wanted her to love me, mm. you know, and, and so, but that was hard. And in regards to my half sibling with the sexual uh, assault, I was the only one in the family that said something prior to one of my younger siblings, you know, and, and I got beat for it. Mm. I got beat senselessly and I was made, after I got beat, then I had to get on my hands and knees. My mother made me scrub the kitchen floor with a toothbrush, with my own toothbrush. Oh my gosh. You know, why he laughed at me behind her back, you know? And you, that would destroy anybody. Absolutely. Anybody, but Floyd and I, I don't know if it's the grace of God I don't know if it's the love that I had when I was younger and continued to have from my father's side of the family. But when I was on that floor scrubbing with that toothbrush, I remember saying to myself, just watch, mm. just wait and watch. Mm. I am wow. wise like a phoenix. And that look, when, when my half sibling looked at me and laughed and I looked back at him, with that determination and power, he stopped laughing. And I knew I had something. Hmm. You know what I mean? I knew, I knew I had something. It's like, yeah, you're bigger than me now, but wait. I'm going to gain power in a different way. And you won't be able to do this to me ever again. 
as, as you're, you're talking about this story, all I can think about is like the color purple and, and Whoopi and, and Oprah. And, and, you know, it's like when she looks at Harpo and says, until you do right by me, uh, you know, that's that, that scene I think about as you're talking about that. And I'm like, you're right. That was God's calling his protection put over you saying, yeah, you're right. This young lady is going to grow up and do amazing things. So what advice would you give to a young lady who has had to go through something similar to what you, what advice would you give them? And, and like them have been hesitant to say anything. Say something say something, but say something to the right person. Find out, um, you know, your, your, your local uh, uh, children welfare society is, children's services are. Go to them. Because if you go to a relative, it may not work. But if you go to the authorities, it's going to work. Know that you are going to face the consequences of them putting you, placing you in maybe in a foster home or a group home or maybe with a, you know, God willing, another caring, loving relative. But that person should be removed and, and, and incarcerated. You know, if you don't have that fortitude, if you don't find that strength, know in time that if you keep your head down and you study really hard and you work hard and put in the hard work and the dedication, you know, and, and, and know that you are just doing time, make the time work for you so that when you get out, you will never be in that position ever again, ever again, mm. you know, so, cause some people aren't that strong. Right. Some people are too afraid because they've been battered so harshly, you know, um, and I get that, you know, but, you know, and also never, ever, ever, ever let anyone take away your joy. Don't let them take, find your joy. You know what I mean? My joy was taking walks and listening to music and dancing by myself and watching boxing. You know what I mean? Boxing made me, I was precariously working out all my anger through the fighters. I'm like, yeah, get them, you know? <laughs> you know? And, but find your outlet, you know, so that your joy never goes away. You know, like somebody said in the boxing world, who was, was it Lou DeBella? I came in, he goes, you're always smiling. Why are you always smiling? I go, Lou, you have no idea. I'm just happy to be here. Amen. You know, wow. I'm just happy to be here. You know, everybody else can complain about whatever. I'm good. Because yeah. I don't know, Brian, have you ever seen me complain about anything? No, not at all. You Every, every time I've seen you at events, I mean, like you said, always smiling. That I mean, that smile radiates a room. Uh, you, you're so right. Uh, so then how did you reconcile when, when your mother comes to you and tells you uh, she has AIDS, she's dying? Uh, how, did all, how did that relationship um, end before she passed away? It ends surprisingly. Um, because she asked me to come to the back room where she was and she was in really bad shape. She refused help. I had every connection in the world. I had like even a hospice, like a high profile hospice that she could have gone to. She refused everything and then lied to the press that I didn't try to help her. And so once again, I'm like, you know, and I'm trying to deal with all the anger and resentment. I'm like, really? You're dying and you're still doing these to me? You know, um, 
But my father told me, you're wrong. She's dying. Put everything aside and you go see her. Because if you mm. don't, you're going to regret it. God bless my father. God rest his soul that he told me to do that. You know, because my father's side of family, we lead with love. Mm-hmm. You know? And I went to the back. She didn't want anybody else there. And she grabbed my hand and she was rocking back and forth and she was crying. I go, Ma, it's all right. She goes, no, you have to forgive me. Please forgive me for everything I've done to you. Please, you have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. And initially in my mind was, I don't have to forgive you for nothing. Mm-hmm. But I knew my father was in the other room. And I was daddy's little girl. And I knew he would, he would have really been disappointed in me for expressing that thought. And I pushed it down. And I said, it's okay, mom. It's okay. Wow. Wow. You know, and, and, and everything went away. Yeah. You know, not completely. I, I still had it here, but a lot of the anger dissipated. And I remember on the ride back to my house, I looked at my father and he looked at me and he just patted my hand and he held my hand and I just started crying like quietly. And, and I looked at him and he went, I'm crying too. <laughs> we're just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I thanked him. I said, thank you. Thank you. Wow. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so uh, talk to me about when did Rosie Perez as a youngster, maybe you were a teen at the time, when did you know you wanted to be a performer? I wanted to perform from day one. I didn't know I wanted to be a performer. So my aunt said that I was dancing in the crib before I could walk, before I could stand up. And, uh, and there's a story, she said that um, my cousins who I brought my sister, sisters, they would come home and I would scream when I would hear them at the door, be in my crib, because they knew that they would always put on Sam and Dave songs. And, and I would dance, and they had this dance like this. I'm, I'm dating myself now. <laughs> and I would hold on to the crib with one hand and go like this with them. And in between, they said I would stick my thumb in my mouth and still bob with my thumb in my mouth. And if, when the record ended, I would scream at the top of my lungs, and they would have to play it over and over until I fell asleep. Um, and the nuns put me on the stage, too, day one. Day one. They told me I had talent, but I never thought of it as a possible profession. You know, I went to college for biochemistry. I wanted to be a marine biologist. And so, you know, but I still never stopped dancing. I never stopped dancing. And then I'm about to leave LA college to go transfer. Hopefully I wanted to go to Stony Brook and the night before I was leaving, I met Spike Lee and my entire life changed. He said, I want you to audition for this movie I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm making. I said, I'm not an actress. She, he went, oh, honey, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> and he changed my life. Wow. He, he changed my life. Now, before that, though, weren't you, you were on Soul Train, though. Yeah, but you know, that was, we didn't think of it as a career. We thought of it like, oh my God, we're on Soul Train. And my father made me quit after eight months. Really? 
Yeah, when he saw me dancing like that, he's never seen me dance like that, you know? And any, any Latina out there knows what I'm talking about. He called me up, he goes, what are you doing? And I go, what? I saw the program and you're dancing like a crazy woman. <laughs> he said, you are not allowed to do that no more. I went, okay. And my girlfriend, my college girlfriends go, you're not serious. I go, but that's my father. And they didn't understand the culture. You know what I mean? I said, yeah. I, I can't do that to him. Oh, you're afraid of him? I go, no, I respect him. Right. You know, and so I quit. So, so but, but how did you get to, from New York to California to do Soul Train? How did that, how did that, and, and Don Cornelius? I went to, I went to LA to go to college. And, and, you know, right away in LA, I wanted to know where, where, the dancing was at and you know and there was nightclubs to be had and to go to and I had a bunch of girlfriends this girlfriend Nia this girlfriend Carol um uh this girlfriend Tracy and we were the crew and they all went to college as well and um I would hear the horn beep beep at my my nighttime uh lab class and I would excuse myself during break, during lab, while we're dissecting animals and stuff, change into my hoochie mama outfit. Cause in LA, that's what that was the that was the style, right? right. Like a hoochie mama, right? And and um, walk back in. I remember my professor the first time I walked in, changing out of this nerdy outfit and changing into the spandex mini dress with high heels. And as I'm clicking across the classroom, he's like this. <laughs> he was checking you out too, Rose. He was like, yeah. <laughs> That's what he was really doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As soon as that class was over, I jumped in the ride and we were off to the club and I would study all day and dance all night. And I was straight edge too at the time. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do nothing. My high was dancing. Wow. So I was able to get up the next day and go to class. But wow. and, and from my understanding, it didn't end well. Not only did your dad wanted you to stop on Soul Train, but it didn't end well with you and Don Cornelius, correct? In Soul yeah, Train. That, that, that kind of coincided. The timing was perfect. But Don Cornelius, I don't, he wanted me to, God rest his soul. Uh, he wanted me to... Uh, sign a recording deal with these other girls to start a new girl group. And, and I kept telling him over and over, I can't sing. And he says, your ability to sing has nothing to do with me wanting you to be in this group. And I went, oh, that's so insulting, right? And so I told him, well, let me take the contract to a lawyer. And he said, no, if you take it to the lawyer out of the group, I go, okay, well, then I'm out of the group. You know, uh, I'm not dummy Donna over here. You know, so he was pissed. And so when I go back to Soul Train that following weekend, he just kept picking on me and picking on me. And I, I went down the Soul Train line differently. And he said, no, I want you to go back and do it like you do it. I said, what do you mean do it like I do it? He goes, you know what I mean. And he, I was like, what? And I knew exactly what he meant. Mm. And I was pissed off because he was saying that was the reason why he wanted me to be in the group. So I went down wrong. And I went down doing hip hop. And he yelled, cut. He said, do it again. 
did it again. Cut, do it again. Did hip hop again. Cut, do it again. Then I just walked. And they called break. And we used to have a two piece Kentucky Fried Chicken dinner that they would give us as payment, which is totally illegal, by the way, right? Because so they consider us background, right? And so everyone goes to lunch and he goes, come here. And he comes and he grabs me. And I undiagnosed mental illness. I didn't know I had PTSD. I didn't know that I had, I suffered from high anxiety and panic attacks. Went in full PTSD mode. He put his hands on me. Flashback to the nuns hitting me, flashback right. to the, my mother punching me in my face, flashback to my brothers abusing me. And all of a sudden I went and I went to grab something and all I grabbed was that chicken box. And I threw it at him and a piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken hit him in the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thrown out. <laughs> You hit a brother with a chicken wing. That is tremendous. <laughs> that's, that's the ultimate disrespect right there. When you say, man, she hit me with a chicken wing. <laughs> okay. We later made up. We later made, years later, we made up. And he apologized to me. He apologized to me. Uh, and I said, it's all right. And he goes, no, seriously, I'm sorry. I said, you're Don Cornelius. It's okay. Wow. It's wow. all right. And uh, so, yeah, but um, yeah, but, but Soul Train started my choreography career too. So there was a lot of good that came out of me. So. Rosie Perez here on the Last Stand podcast. And we're going to talk with Rosie as she, she's just gotten into uh, what the movie had, had done for her career, Do the Right Thing, White Man Can Jump, Fearless, all of those type of things. But first, I want to talk to you about the all new natural B1 patch here. And I'll tell you what. If you're looking to get energy, uh, focus, uh, help with your workouts, you've got to get yourself the B1 patch. It's all natural. It, it has thiamine in it. It has the B1 vitamin. It also boosts your immune system. All you got to do is stick it on, and then minutes later, you feel the effects of that thiamine, the liquid thiamine, the B1 in your system. It's going to give you a renewed energy focus, help you with workouts, all kinds of stuff. Even if you're like Rosie, you want to be an actor and you need to go be on the set for hours and hours, the B1 patch is for you. Professional sports and athletes use it. You can use it as well. All you got to do is go to buyb1.com and use the promo code BC3 and you get 20% off. I use it. Professional athletes use it. You can use it too. Go to buyb1.com. Use the promo code BC3 to get a discount. It's the all-new and all-natural B1 patch. Use what the pros use. It's the Last Stand Podcast here with the great and talented Rosie Perez. So you're talking about do the right thing. You meet Spike Lee. He cast you in that movie. And that's when I think every brother fell in love with Rosie Perez because the beginning of that movie we said, my goodness, that is a goddess there. So what did uh, Do the Right Thing do for your career? Everything. It changed my life. It changed my life. You know, I knew I was going to be successful. Just like a champion knows they're going to be champ one day. Um, but I never imagined 
it was going to be via the entertainment world. I never thought that. Um, I really thought I was going to be a scientist. Um, so it, you know, it changed everything. That said, due to the racism and prejudice and bigotry and sexism in the entertainment industry, it was not easy. Mm. Do the right thing just cracked the door open for me, mm. you know, and they wanted me to do things, the roles that they sent me, it was, it was beyond insulting. And I remember I'm like, uh, nope, that's not going to work for me. And I told my representatives, if you can't get me the roles that I want, you're fired. And I would fire people. And they were like, you have some nerve. You're new in this. I go, okay. And yeah, I got nerve. I have belief. Mm. That's what I have. You call it nerve. I call it belief. So if you don't believe in me as much as I do, or even more, you're not the person for me. So bye. And I think that I had that confidence to do that was because I had a plan B. I could always go back and get my degree. You know, so I didn't have that fear. And plus, I didn't have that fear anyway, regardless. I just, you know, you know, I've been enduring all this crap all my life. And then the entertainment industry thinks they're going to be like, a heavy hitter getting in the ring with me? No, no. I'm curious then, so you, you get the movie and you do it, and then you had the sex scene in there. So it's your first movie, you get the sex. What, what was the uh, what, what was the reaction from the Perez family uh, when they oh. saw the movie <laughs> they saw oh, that oh, sex scene? Oh my God, I didn't tell my father because I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking this is an independent film, he'll never see it. And then it explodes, right? He went and took all his friends in Puerto Rico, bought out the movie theater there. Yeah. And then the scene comes up. He had to be rushed to the hospital. No. He went into cardiac arrest. BB. No. <laughs> I don't know if it was an actual cardiac arrest, because you know how us Puerto Ricans are. We're melodramatic, you know? <laughs> my friends were like, oh my God, you should have seen your father. He was like, you. You know, like he was. <laughs> You know, <laughs> excuse me, and um, yeah, I had to fly down to Puerto Rico to have a chat with him. I could, it was not over the phone. It was not over the phone. He didn't want to talk to me over the phone. And, and we came to an agreement about artistic films. <laughs> 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 and I was like, okay, all right. And you know, oh my God, I felt so horrible hurting him like that. You know, but I would say this, my father was my biggest fan. Yeah. He was my, he was so proud, you know, and he, he really, you know, and, and, and when I would get a role that was kind of questionable, I would call him up and I would, you know, we would talk it through, you know. That's fantastic. So then maybe I, I want to say maybe it's a year later, uh, all of a sudden you're at the Soul Train Awards with Tupac. And boy, I mean, you're at their height. This guy's at his height. Talk to me about that night and how did you two meet? Well, Tupac and I met on the road when he was a roadie slash dancer for, uh, uh, what's that girl? Oh my God. Digital Underground? Yeah, do the Humpty Hump, yeah. Yeah, Digital Underground. And I was with Heavy D and the boys. And, you know, the talent goes in and the crew, you know, we're left to bring the bags in and bring everything in and stuff like that. And, 
and he came up to me and he's like, what's up? I'm Pac. I was like, Pac? I go, what's up? I'm Rose. And he goes, what's up? And he had these pearly whites and he wasn't hitting on me. And in the music industry, you know, women had a tough. You were hitting right. on 24 seven. And that just struck me. It struck me in a really, really profound way. And we became friends. And that night on, on the Soul Train Music Awards, I was, I was dating, I thought I was dating another rapper, which to this date, I will never say who. Cause yeah, because somebody stood you up that night. Who was it? I can't tell you. Come on. That's <laughs> he was big. He was big. Let's just say that. And he's, he, I'm already, you know, I'm there with my, my best college friend, Miriam Wade, and, 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 and my best friend, Julie, and, and Rhonda Cowan, and, and we're all getting, they're helping me get ready, and we're all excited, get the phone call, I can't go with you, I can't be seen on TV, my girl will kill me, I, what, you're what? Oh my God, I hung up the phone, I was devastated, I started crying, the scare went, phone rings, What's up, it's Pat. I go, and he goes, man, fuck, excuse me, F that man. F that N word. Yeah. Me. I said, what? He goes, we're going to roll up there. Now let him see who you're with on TV. I said, you'll do that for me? He goes, yeah, plus I want to go. I wasn't invited. <laughs> yeah, Don Cornelius did not want Tupac there. <laughs> and so we were doing each other a favor and we rolled up there. Man, oh man, I was stunned. I mean, the cameras were flashing like crazy and he grabs my hand and I was like, uh, like, you know, what is that about? And he goes, go with it, go with it. And <laughs> we're walking down and every, I did not realize how many women he was messing with because I had so many, they sat, I was supposed to be seated maybe five, 10 rows back. They switched my seat and put it first row. Wow. So many women, recording artists, women in the industry, walking up to us, standing in front of us, looking at me, then looking at him and like, oh, so you were her? <laughs> no, 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 no. We're just friends. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And this one female rapper comes up to me and I'm sitting next to Pop and she starts cursing me out and PTSD, that Brooklyn girl comes out, yeah. my face changed and I was like, you need to move now. And she goes, what? I said, I don't talk. <laughs> you need to move. And she looked at him and he went, I think you should listen to the woman. So she stomps off and he goes, I've never seen that side of you. I go, I'm sorry, I'm so embarrassed. He goes, embarrassed, that's amazing. <laughs> I go to the bathroom, I bump into Madonna and she's like, girl, hook me up. Stop. I was like, really? She goes, yes, hook it up, please. Went back over, I said, yo, Pac, you'll never believe this. You know, you know Madonna? He goes, yeah. I go, she wants to hook up with, what? he just got up at his seat. He's like, where is she? Come on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 
and the rest is history between the them two. <laughs> yeah, next week you saw her walking down like a red carpet with a bandana tied on her. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I guess it worked out. So, right. Yeah. She looked like she was a member of Death Row. You know what I mean? The next week. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. Oh my God, it's too funny. Uh, so obviously, uh, all of that then leads to white men can't jump. Uh, that just, I mean, and then your career just skyrockets. Uh, talk to me about that. Do you believe that's the movie that puts you mainstream? Yes, 100%. And um, to this day, uh, that's the most fun I ever had on the set. There was one that came close uh, when uh, I did a TV show for two years in the UK with Jack Whitehall. I, had, I told him, I said, I had as much fun with you than I had with Woody. And he was like, wow. And I said, yeah, because no one's topped that in, what, 30 years? Um, and we just had a chemistry and a connection from, from day one, from when I went in for casting. And, um, and Wesley was the person that came to us first day filming. He says, you know, this is going to be a hit. We're like, yeah. He goes, no, you understand. This is going to be a worldwide mega hit. And I went, yeah, right. And he goes, okay, we'll see. And he was right. Wesley was right. Um, and uh, a little story that I don't really talk about that much. Uh, I didn't want to be nude. They wanted me to be nude. And all I'm thinking about is my father. And I told Woody, I wouldn't come out of the dressing room and I was crying. And when I was like, I don't want to be nude, I don't want to, I want to be, he goes, well, you shouldn't be ashamed of your body. I said, I'm not ashamed of my body. It's not that. I just don't want to be exploited. And he goes, okay, come out. I got you. Don't worry. Everyone's respectful here. Come out of the bathroom. I walk out of the bathroom. When I walked out, the towel slipped. And when he went, oh my God, look at your tits. <laughs> Thanks, great, great. That's, that's wonderful. Thanks, Woody. And that's when that scene when I'm in the bed with him, because these are real. Right. So I had a tank top on, and then it starts to slip. If you watch the film, you'll see me move the tank over to try to cover it. But what happens, it exposes it. <laughs> <laughs> and I called my father. I go, Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm warning you this time. <laughs> I'm warning you this time. But I told my father too, I said, but I want you to understand, I'm, I'm also not ashamed of my body. Right. And he went, well. oh. And I said, so I just, you know, just as long as it's not exploitive and, and disrespectful, you know. I said, I, but I tried, I tried to cover it. That's hilarious. I, I, I think the most important question is though, can you still recite foods that start with the letter Q? No. <laughs> Which I love that part of the movie. That was tremendous. Um, oh, so then after that, you, you get, you get that, the, the role fearless. Um, you get nominated for an Oscar the Golden Globe, uh, what do you think your performance in that film said to Hollywood? That I wasn't a fluke, that I wasn't a flash in the pan, I wasn't the flavor of the month, that I could deliver outside of a comedy. And I had done drama prior on an on a HBO movie with Forrest Whitaker and Jennifer Grey. Um, 
you know, but, you know, they didn't take that seriously either. But fearless, it changed the perception. And I fought for that. You know, most people say, well, you're lucky you got these films. <laughs> Honey, you know, luck is preparation meets opportunity. Yes. I was prepared. And I wasn't only prepared. I made sure I had the right team that was prepared to fight for me to get those kind of roles. Because the studio did not want to see me. They didn't want me audition. They didn't want me to be put on tape. They didn't want anything. But at that time, I had the right representation, and they fought for me. And I had told them, I said, here's the deal. If you can get me in the room, the rest is up to me. If it fails, then I have nothing against you. But you got to get me in the room. And they beat. And with that film, Fearless, I had four callbacks. And it was all because the color of my skin and my accent. I knew that. And it was this wonderful producer, Paula Weinstein, and um, an amazing director, Peter Weir, and a wonderful man, um, Jeff Bridges. Those three people changed the course of my career once again because they fought for me, which circles back to the beginning of our conversation. That's why I say that white people have a lot of work to do. If they really want things to change, if they really want to say, you know, systemic change needs to happen in America across the board. Well, it starts with you. Yeah. Because I didn't create this. You did. Right. So you have to undo this. And you could say, oh, well, we didn't invent slavery. No, you didn't. But you're continuing. Right. You're continuing racism. You're continuing bigotry mm -hmm. by preventing us from the opportunities. So, you know, those three people, what did they all have in common? They're white and they're successful. And they had my back. Mm. They had my back. And, and it made a difference. Wow, that's great. Um, and then uh, you go from doing uh, big movies. You, you also did so much television. Of course, you get on The View. It was a new experience, a new challenge. Because I learned a lot. I learned a lot and I made a lot of great friends. And, you know, especially being Nicole Wallace, yeah. <laughs> you know, two opposing views and we're like great friends now. I still am in touch with Whoopi, you know. Um, I got to bring boxing to the view. Are you kidding me? Man, we had a fight. Ooh, that was a fight. That was a fight. Um, you know, uh, you know, and it was, so it was, it was great. The best thing that ever came out of that show was the support and backing that I got from the Latina community. I was shocked. That meant everything to me. That meant everything to me. And that's why when I was leaving, I got so emotional because I didn't ask for that support. That support came. And that's, that's wonderful. Do you, do you think that that show is still uh, an impactful show? 100%, 100%. And um, I think that the team they have now is actually really good. I think that, um, oh, what's her name? Anna Navarro. I think that they should add her to, to the table 
I think she would be a great addition, you know, but what they have now is, is, is really good. And I, you know, a lot of their stuff has gone viral, you know, because with the current administration, there were so many important things to talk about and hearing the opposing views, they were concrete opposing views, you know, was I think necessary, you know, and, you know, one thing that I would love, which most people are surprised by, that the show continues to succeed because there's very few shows where it's all about female empowerment, you know, and so, and of women of color, you know, you have Whoopi Goldberg at the helm. That's bad. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I still want them to, to be relevant and continue to be relevant and they are, and they will be hopefully, you know, um, and I know some people go, oh, but they argue too much. That's the point of the show. <laughs> right. Absolutely. That's the whole premise of the show. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, you, you've made mention to it. I, I mentioned it at the very top. We call you the first lady of boxing because if anybody follows you on social media, uh, they see you always, you're tweeting about the fights. You, you attend a number of fights. When, how old were you? When did you first fall in love with boxing? How did that come about? Um, when I was a little girl, when I saw um, uh, Wilfredo Benitez get beaten by Sugar Ray Leonard, um, it was the first time that I cried watching really? a boxing match. Yeah, and I cried because, you know, Benitez was an icon most amazing, you know, and also I cried because I felt guilty that I had like a little girl's crush on Sugar Ray Leonard. Who did it? Oh my God, <laughs> you, you know? And, and so, um, yeah, but I think that's when I got hooked because I got invested in the fighter. It wasn't just watching a fight. I was invested. And I felt like, I know it sound, it's going to sound corny, but I felt like I was in their corner rooting for them, you know? And, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an exhilarating and, and, and feeling to watch a fighter that you saw as a prospect move their way all the way up, even before prospect, you know? Uh, move, you know, from four rounders to eight rounders to 10 to 12. And you're like, oh my God. And you follow their career. And now they're making their ring walk for their very first title shot. The emotions are so high within me. You know, in my family too, it's a cultural thing as well. You know, Puerto Ricans, we love baseball and boxing. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know but it it's, 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 it's that same connection that I had as a little girl. It never went away. Wow. Uh, so who, who, who's, the, who's your favorite fighter now? Who's the one guy uh, that whenever he steps in the ring, you're like, oh, I got to turn it on. Or if, he, if he's fighting in New York City, I got to go to the fight. Who's that, who's, who is your guy? I have many. I can't, I, I, can't, I, I, I do. Everyone's like, oh, you got to pick one. I go, why? Right. Pick one. But, you know, I mean, everyone from, from, uh, Triple G to uh, Lomachenko, um, uh, Bud Crawford. Oh, I'm so excited when he, man, his last fight. Whoa, whoa, everybody was on the edge of their seats. Um, 
you know, Love Spence Jr. Um, Theofimo is a really exciting mm-hmm. guy. Um, hopefully they'll make that fight. I don't know if he's quite ready for Lomachenko because Lomachenko is such a smart, quick fighter. But we have to remember, Linares dropped him. Yes. You know, yes. and Linares doesn't have the power that Theofimo has. So yeah, he's a confident young man too. Very, very confident. But you know what? You know, like it would be it would be great to see him in more difficult fights with a much more crafty, smart boxer um, before he takes on Lomachenko. But he'll probably just go straight to Lomachenko, and then we'll see what happens. Um, but he does have that. He he does have a shot for a knockout if he connects. Absolutely. You know? um, Absolutely. You know, but like like I said, Lomachenko got back up after Linares dropped him. He got right back up. It was like, boing! I was like, wow, okay. Um, gosh, there's so many fighters that 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 I love. Um, oh, I really love uh, Tyson Fury. And I remember when I said that at the beginning, everyone goes, he's crazy. I go, okay, and <laughs> he's excitement, man. Yes, he is. Excitement to the core, and he knows how to sell a fight. And you could say he has a lot of bad things about him in regards to, you know, all these other issues, social issues, or what have you. But as a man in the ring, I want to see him fight. I want to see him fight. I want to see him against Anthony Joshua. That's going to shut everybody up. That fight, you know, it's whoever wins that fight, that's it's going to be what you just did. Yeah. Okay. That's it. You know, but there, there's so many. I'm, I know I'm forgetting so many other uh, other fighters. Well, you made some great ones, though. You you you've you've knocked off uh, uh, some great fighters there. And uh, before we we even get to the end of this, you got to tell us what do you have coming up? What what movies you got coming up? TV shows you got coming up? The, promote Rosie. What do you got coming up? <laughs> well, Birds of Prey is still available uh on amazon um uh with margot robbie and i was in the middle of shooting a new television series for hbo max starring kelly kuko i call she's from uh, big bang the blonde of big bang i call it kelly kuko um, <laughs> uh, uh and that's really exciting and it's called the flight attendant and she plays this alcoholic promiscuous crazy flight attendant and I play the head purser. It's a very dark comedy. It's a very dark comedy slash thriller. And I'm really happy about it. I think it's gonna turn out really, really well. Um, I just directed this film. I have another independent film called Inside the Rain that's out. That Zab Judah made a cameo. How about that? But I walked up on set and they go, there's a friend of yours here. And I go, who? Jeff, what you doing here? <laughs> he goes, I'm in this. I go, doing what? He goes, I'm acting. I went, oh. That's okay. fantastic. Okay, let's see what you got. Right. So I started ad-libbing with him, and that's a true test of an actor. If you can't hang when somebody's ad-libbing, going off script with you, and still staying in pocket, meaning still staying within the scene and within the character, you know, I started ad-libbing in the jab. Zab was going toe to toe with me. I couldn't believe it. And of course, they, they, they couldn't put in the film. He was supposed to just make a little quick you know, cameo. And they were like, oh my God, that was amazing. And I said, Zab, yo, 
you got a second career. <laughs> and he goes, do I? I was shocked. I was shocked. I was shocked. Um, and I'm also uh, writing something. I don't want to give that away too much. Okay. And, um, and, and there's also talks about another, uh, if, it, if it ever comes, well, it will come back. Let me correct myself. But a possible play on Broadway again. Another play. Oh, that's fantastic. A, a drama. A drama. Yes. So. Yeah, things are, things are good. Life is, life is really, really good. That's great. That's great. Um, whenever we have a guest on, we ask the people who watch and listen uh, to submit some questions. We got a number for a uh, number of questions for you. Uh, I'll start with uh, this one comes from Facebook. Michael from Facebook says, uh, "Did the industry industry make you soften your accent?" No, time did, and not living in Bushwick did. <laughs> <laughs> That's a letter. That's good. Yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, like if 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 I get excited, uh Ludabella laughs. And so the, you know Andres Ferrari. Yes. We're at a boxing match where like if we weren't talking today and we we're off camera and I I start getting going, they start laughing. I go, what? They go, you're still Bushwick. You're still <laughs> that New Yorkian with that accent. It comes out, it comes out, but no. Um Sometimes a role will call, call for me not to have the accent and then I switch it, you know, but I think that it's just environment. The environment changed, you know? I mean, if you were living over in England for long periods of time, you would, you know, you would change or people yeah. come from, you know, California come to New York, they start talking like a New Yorker. I mean, I think, I think that's what, I think that's what, how it slowly, started to change, but let him know, who, who is he? Michael from Facebook. Michael from Facebook, it's still there. <laughs> uh, this one you already answered. Uh, Reginald from Facebook says, how long did you dance on Soul Train? I think you said eight months, isn't that what you oh, said? Eight months. Mm -hmm. People eight think months. that I danced for years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was only eight months, yeah. Uh, Dewey also from Facebook says, uh, the relevance of do the right thing as it relates to the current social uh, political climate? Unfortunately, it's still relevant. Unfortunately, it's still poignant. And unfortunately, a lot has not changed. You know? And the numbers of viewers for that movie has skyrocketed skyrocketed you know and i remember when it first came out they told us at the premiere that they needed a police force because there was going to be rioting inside the movie theater if if this movie is shown mm. that's how scared they were of this movie and i remember also they were telling uh spike that um it was too much of an exaggeration of the truth Wow. Mm. Wow. You know, the crazy thing is I have, I have two, three boys, but two of them are high schoolers. And we made, as a family, we watched, we made them watch Do the Right Thing. I want to say uh, maybe a day after George uh, Floyd was killed. And my boys watched that movie. And when Radio Raheem died, they were like, Oh my God, that was happening back then. And we tried to, you know, hit them like, 
bruh, this has been going on for years. Yes. Years. Um, wow. Um, fascinating. Uh, this one comes from Twitter. It says, what fight in boxing do you want to see made the most? Uh, Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua. Yeah. And I think they made it, right? Yeah, yeah they, they've agreed to the money, and that's, that's the important part. You yeah, know? Part. And also, I would love to see fighters in his division step up and fight Bud Crawford. Gosh darn it. Hey, we had Bud Crawford on the Last Stand podcast. Errol Spence, we talked about it. They, they claim 2021 is the year. We'll see if it happens, Rose. Yeah, I feel like they're trying to do him like they did uh, Triple G, letting him age out, you know, but Bud is still young. Yes, he is. He's still yes, young and has not taken punishment, you know what I mean? Like, you know, for someone in his class, he has not taken punishment, you know, and so, you know, I, I you know, that's like that last fight at the Garden that I was on, you know, and everyone thought he was done. He was finished. And that's what I'm talking about. When you come from that background, he was like, oh, you saw it in his eyes. Something clicked. And he was like, oh, hell no. Hell no. <laughs> that's hilarious. Did you see his family, his mother, his mother and his grandmother are yelling him, yelling at him going, but you better get him. <laughs> oh my God, I love them. I, love I know, them. I love them. That family gets turned up, man, at a Bud Crawford fight. They do. I love it for that. Yeah. Uh, Rosie, we've come to the last segment here of, of this podcast. We call it The Last Stand. I'm oh. going to ask you a series of questions, Rosie Perez. I want the first thing, not the second, not the third, but the first thing that comes to your mind. You ready? Okay. Okay, here we go. Can you still? Do those dance moves that we saw at the beginning of Do the Right Thing. Yes, but not as good. <laughs> <laughs> I would say like I'm maybe 70, 75 percent. You can give us a little, huh? A little. No, 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 no. <laughs> I love it. Uh, first thing that comes to your mind when I say Jennifer Lopez. Very, very determined, ambitious successful woman. There you go. Uh, better dancer. I love that answer, by the way. Better dancer, Paul Abdul, Jennifer Lopez, or Rosie Perez? Different. But who's the better dancer? <laughs> <laughs> it's different because we're in different lanes. We do different things. Does that make sense? I, I understand. I understand. Uh, but who's the better dancer? <laughs> <laughs> Look at her. She's like, I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to let you take the fifth on that one. That's, that's the only one I'm going to let you take the fifth on. Uh, who was the real baller in White Man Can't Jump? Wesley or Woody? Woody. Really? Wesley would lose to him all the time. Oh, my God. So you're telling me white men can't jump, but they can ball. They can ball. Woody <laughs> ball. Like, so well. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Billy the got... Like on the, on the basketball court, when we were filming, and they, you know, 
you know, they were like, Wesley, Wesley. And then they see Woody get on the court warming up. They went, Wes Woody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, who reps Puerto Rico better? Brooklyn or the Bronx? Brooklyn. Uh, so then who reps Puerto Rico better? J-Lo or Rosie? We both do. I have yeah. to. I have to say that we both love our. We both love our motherland. We both love it. You know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. And, and and we we show our love in different ways, but the love is still there. You know what yeah. I mean. And talk about the Bronx. The Bronx is where, you know, people want to know their history. You know, uh, Puerto Ricans were incentivized to go to the United States, and it was called Operation Bootstrap in the 40s and an influx of them came and they were offering them free passage to the United States. And what the Puerto Ricans didn't understand is they really were offered free passage for cheap labor. Mm. So they put them in the factories, they put them in the garment district factories, they put them um, in agriculture, uh, you know, out in the fields. And a lot of them, they flew to New York and dumped them in the Bronx. So initially, the Bronx had the most concentration of Puerto Ricans in New York for a very, very long time. And then they started filtering out. So my answer is actually incorrect. It's just I'm a Brooklyn girl. I'm going to rep Brooklyn all day, BK all day, spread love the Brooklyn way. So that's <laughs> the reason why I picked Brooklyn. But um, yeah, so, you know, when people go, how come they, you know, what, what was the influx? And, and you, know, you know, that's why I'm talking about movies too, because like if you think about something like West, West Side Story, yes, it's iconic, da, 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 but they didn't tell our full story. Yeah. They didn't say yeah. it, right? You know what I mean? And they also made it look like every Puerto Rican was dirt poor. And that wasn't the case either. You know? That was the reason for the inception of the National Puerto Rican Day Parade. Because business owners got together and say, listen, the perception of us needs to change. And that's why all the floats represent different businesses. Wow. How about that? And we get a history lesson as well here on the last damn podcast she is the lovely the talented rosie perez rosie i mean this i love you dearly and i i can't thank you enough for spending an hour with us here on this podcast oh thank you so much it was very enjoyable and it, the time flew by and it did it did i mean you just educated us i think some people are going to get so much from your story uh and that's that's the important thing and and listen, I wish you nothing but the greatest success going forward. Stay healthy. And let's do it again. We'll get your cousin. We'll get six toe on next time. Oh, God, the world has to get ready. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Brian. And thank you to your entire staff and crew. It was, it was very, very enjoyable. And I appreciate it. Folks, that's what we do here on The Last Stand Podcast. We give you the biggest names in sports and entertainment, just like the one and only Rosie Perez. We'll see you next week. All right, take care.